God, we know that what we just sang is true, that Christ is indeed the sure and steady anchor. All our hopes are bent on him. Our only hope in life and death is that we belong to him. And Lord, we desperately need that this morning. With all of the weight and cares of the world that we bring with us this morning, we need something sure, something steadfast, something solid, something that will not give in and will not give way. We need you. God, we need your son Jesus and the promises Christ that you have bought for us. And we need your spirit in us to help us in our unbelief. So I pray, Lord God, that as we go to your word this morning, that you would feed us with what is needful. That you would bring to our remembrance. We people who so often forget. All that you have done for us in Christ Jesus. All that you promised to do for us in Christ Jesus. And the very great end of it all. Our great hope of newness of life, eternal life with you in the new creation. Would you bring these things to us through your word? Would you help me as I explain your word? Would you till the soil of our hearts so that your word falls on fertile ground? And bears fruit. We pray that you do all these things. In Jesus name. Amen. Our sermon text this morning. Is Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Verses 7. Through chapter 12. Verse 8. As we begin this morning. I want to reflect actually on last Wednesday. We started Bible study, um, hosted at the Schultz house. In our study of James, we looked at the first few verses. But as I was walking into study, if you've ever been to the Schultz house, you know that it faces the lake and it faces the westward side of the lake. And so when the sun is setting, it shines just straight into their windows, which makes for a glorious time trying to see one another during study. But God is good and we could still see. One of the effects, though, is that as you walk towards their house, the sun hits you and the breeze off the lake hits you just right. And on a day like last Wednesday, it was glorious. And I probably could have stood there for all of the time of study, just enjoying the sun hitting my face and enjoying the cool breeze off the lake. This is a reminder. It's meant to be a reminder when we experience things like that. That God's world is full of things that are very good. Sunshine is very good. The preacher agrees when he says in verse 7 of chapter 11, light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Right? Sunshine is very good. Not only that, but life is full of other goods. Coffee in the morning. The smell of it brewing and the joy of enjoying it if you like coffee. Sitting around a campfire with friends, talking late into the evening. Experiencing the joy of fellowship and the joy of just smelling the burning wood and seeing the the flames dance up into the darkness. These are good moments that we ought to enjoy. Going on a picnic with the family on a beautiful summer day. 
eating outside in God's good creation and looking all around us and saying, this is good. Life is full of moments like that and they ought to be enjoyed. But we have seen, as we've traveled through Ecclesiastes with the preacher, the preacher is not just sunshine and rainbows. The preacher is not just reflecting on the goodness in life. We know that under the sun, life is filled with many dark days. We remembered one of those dark days yesterday as we remembered the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. Many lives lost, great evil done, changing our experience of living in this country forever. We know that other dark days come. Injuries happen. People get sick. People die. Friendships are broken. Business is lost. All of those kind of things happen to us under the sun. The preacher is frank about that. In verse 8, he says, If a person lives, lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him Remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Under the sun, there is great good to be enjoyed and great darkness to be endured. How can we learn to do what the preacher commends over and over and over again, which is to rejoice, to enjoy? How can we learn to do that if the days of darkness are many? How As the preacher says in verse 8, remember the days of darkness. How does that not ruin our joy? I don't want to remember the days of darkness as I'm standing there enjoying the sun, right? I don't want to remember the days of darkness as I'm sitting around a campfire. I want to be in this moment enjoying it. So how does this memory not ruin our joy? The world would say that happiness and joy comes from carefree living. But we know that looking at the reality of life under the sun, we can't live carefree. We can't remain young and dumb forever, right? We have to be realistic about life under the sun. The preacher wants us, in light of God's word, to not be naive in our rejoicing. God's word tells us that we can still enjoy the good in life. We can still find joy even under the sun. And that joy in life, that joy that we can have in life, only comes when we remember God. You can only enjoy life when you remember God. All through this text, as we'll see this morning, rejoice is paired with remember. Rejoice is constantly paired with remember. And as we read this whole text this morning, listen for that. The preacher is concerned that we learn to rejoice rightly. And he's saying, in order to do that, we have to remember certain things. So let's listen for that now as we read Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 7 to 12, verse 8. The preacher says this, Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. 
before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. Those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the streets are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. We're going to travel through this text and look at three aspects of rejoicing rightly that the preacher wants us to see in light of his message. The first one I want to look at is that the preacher tells the young man to rejoice, right? We see that particularly in verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. We've seen over and over in Ecclesiastes a refrain that we must truly enjoy God's good gifts. We can only rejoice rightly if we truly enjoy God's good gifts. The preacher has said this over and over again. Look with me at a trek through Ecclesiastes as we look at this refrain of joy or rejoicing. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Verse 24, Ecclesiastes 2, verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give it to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 12 to 13. Preacher says this in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 12. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Or Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 18 to 20. Ecclesiastes five eighteen. the preacher says this. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. Or Ecclesiastes chapter 9. What we looked at just a few weeks ago. Chapter 9 verses 7 to 10. Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved of what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life. With the wife whom you love all the days 
of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life. And in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your, with your, with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. In light of living life under the sun, in other words, the preacher says, we must rejoice, and to rejoice rightly, we must actually truly enjoy these good gifts that God has given. We summarized, when we went through Ecclesiastes 9, these categories of feasting. The preacher over and over mentions food and drink, doesn't he? Enjoying them as good gifts from God. Enjoying this feast that's prepared for us by God and given to us by God. And we talked about the category of fellowship when the preacher talks about enjoying life with the wife whom he's been given. Enjoying the fellowship that comes from friends and family. Enjoying the fellowship that comes as brothers and sisters in the church. Not only that, but enjoying this fruitful labor, this work, taking joy in your toil, the preacher says. Even though he says over and over again that the gain we're searching for does not come from our toil. He still, over and over again, tells us to rejoice in our toil. To rejoice in the fruitful work that God has given us to do. So friends, even though all is vanity. And the preacher starts there in verse 2 of chapter 1. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And he ends his message there. We saw in our text this morning. In chapter 12, verse 8, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Even though we live in a world that is full of hevel under the sun, eat, drink, dress yourself, marry, have children, enjoy friendships, laugh together, experience the joy of hard work, experience the joy of satisfaction in a job well done. All of those things we're called to enjoy. The preacher calls us to enjoy those and those help us rejoice rightly in God because they are all pointing to something. Our feasting, our fellowship, our fruitful labor points back to the garden. It's a memory of what God had given us to do in the garden, right? Every tree and every plant yielding seed is for you for food to feast on. Adam, I've brought you Eve, and together, you are to enjoy this fellowship of marriage, naked and unashamed. And, what was the command given to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, exercise dominion, work and keep this garden. Experience fruitful labor of gardening and extending this garden as God's presence throughout the earth. As we experience enjoying god's good gifts we're having a memory a flashback of eden of the goodness the very good that god created and we're having a pointer to the new creation a foretaste of the new creation where what do we have we have a feast with the lamb the marriage supper of the lamb we have fellowship with christ and his bride and we have fruitful work The finished work of Christ that actually produces something. New life in you and me. As we live in this world, enjoying God's good gifts, we point to these things. We point back to the Garden of Eden and we point forward to the new creation. We're given a memory and a foretaste to help our rejoicing in God. This is why the preacher commends 
rejoicing to the youth. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, he says in verse 9. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Enjoy all these things. The question for us is, do we enjoy life like a young man in his prime? On the cusp of life. Newly married, still naive about the trials that will come in marriage. Newly entering into a career that he thinks will be so satisfying. And in many ways it will. Newly looking out on life, maybe waiting for a young baby to be born. That man is full of joy. Full of rejoicing that is unadulterated by the realities of life, right? Unadulterated by the experiences of disappointment and sadness and the dark days to come. And the preacher wants us to rejoice in God's good gifts like that young man rejoices in the life in front of him. He doesn't want us to say, ah, but you know, I got to hold myself back from enjoying these things because I know they won't last. No, he says to the young man, walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes in verse 9. He wants him to enjoy these things and he wants us to enjoy these things. You might think if you read the the latter half of verse 9 though, that maybe this is a trap. Because at the end of verse 9, what does he say? He says, know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. This smells like a trap to me, right? Fully engage, enjoy, rejoice in all of the good gifts that God has given in a world he has created very good. But remember, you'll be judged. That sounds like a trap, but it's actually not. Friends, knowing that God will bring us into judgment actually helps our joy. Remembering that God is judge helps us rejoice rightly. That's the second one I want to look at. Remembering that God is judge. Knowing that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment at the end of verse 9. Friends, the Bible is very clear that God is a judge. This is hard for us to remember and grapple in our judgment-free zone age, right? It seems wicked to say that God is judgy. But the Bible is clear that God will bring you into judgment for these things. I want to look at a couple passages real quick. Think about Romans chapter 2. Don't necessarily have to turn there. If you want to just listen, that's fine. Romans chapter 2, verse 6. Through verse 11, Paul writes this. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no impartiality. Or here, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. Paul writes this. He says, Actually, I think it's 2 Thessalonians, because that doesn't look like the text I intended. 2 Thessalonians, verses 5 to 10. This is what he says. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since, indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you 
and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Friends, the Bible is clear that God will judge. Hebrews 10 says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God who will judge. We must not soften or neglect this truth. But friends, I believe that remembering that God will judge actually enhances our joy. How does it do that? How does it do that? Remembering that God will judge, first of all, sets boundaries for our proper enjoyment of his good gifts. Here's what I mean. Motor oil is a good gift for my car, right? My engine appreciates motor oil, if I were to personify it. If I don't put oil in it, bad things happen. Motor oil is a bad drink for children, right? If you stop your kids from drinking motor oil because they're curious and think it looks like some kind of syrupy whatever, you're being a good parent. You're setting boundaries for the proper enjoyment of a gift, oil, that's not meant to be drank, but meant to be used to keep your car running. Likewise, in our culture, we have a misunderstanding of the place of the gift of sexuality and sex. We think that sex is a gift to be enjoyed just open-handedly and freely and however you want, whatever makes you happy. That is not actually a good use of that gift, right? But it is a good gift to be fully enjoyed in the context of covenant marriage. To look at the gift of sex and say, since God sets limits on it, he's actually limiting my enjoyment is wrong. Because in marriage, sex is wonderful. Outside of marriage, sex is destructive, right? When we enjoy God's good gifts or try to enjoy them in the wrong way, outside of the boundaries he has set for us, it actually leads us to destruction, even if it's potentially enjoyable at the time, right? If you persist on a diet of only ever ice cream, you will enjoy it for a while, but eventually it will kill you. Don't do that, right? God sets boundaries and remembering that he is a judge who will judge us for whether we keep those boundaries helps us stay within those boundaries and enjoy fully and completely his gifts in the right ways not only that but remembering that god is judge teaches us that everything matters god doesn't just judge the big things in life the big decisions you make he pays attention to the little mundane things that you do in the everyday. We were talking on Wednesday night about facing trials and why it's easier to count it all joy when you encounter big trials than it is to count it all joy when you encounter the everyday mundane trials of life under the sun. It's harder because we don't think about those things as mattering. But remembering that God will judge teaches us that every single moment matters. It matters to God and it should matter to us. And so, if all we have is a mundane Monday, it's not a loss. It's still good. It's still to be enjoyed. We can still go to our job 
that feels monotonous and take joy and pride in our work done for the king. Because God will judge and reward our faithfulness. It matters every moment. Knowing that God is judge, remembering that he is judge, reminds us also that he will judge us for a response to his gifts. If he gives you something good, that you try to get take from that good what you should only get from God. In other words, you try to use that good for your soul's happiness, satisfaction, security. You're committing idolatry and you're going to be judged for that. Right? Don't use God's gifts improperly. The preacher over and over has taught us that we cannot find the gain we want in the gifts that God has given us in this world. But it also helps us enjoy these gifts because it reminds us that when God gives you a gift, you are responsible to enjoy it as well. If you take what God has given you as good and spurn it, you will be judged for that. Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy chapter 4 when he says that those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from certain foods are advocating the teaching of demons because everything created by God is good if it's received with thanksgiving. He reminds us that we are judged not only for not misusing God's gifts, but for how we enjoy them. It's an exhortation for us to actually dive in and enjoy what God has given us as we should. Remembering that God is judge also teaches us that God is just. And this is so important when we live life under the sun and we see a world that is so broken Filled with injustice. Remember when the preacher talked about how in the place of righteousness there was wickedness. And in the place of justice there was injustice. And especially if we have a sensitive heart. We will be crushed by that. And we will be prevented from enjoying the good that God has given us. Because of the presence of evil and wickedness and suffering in the world. Right? How can you enjoy something good that God has given you when there is so much suffering in the world? How can you take your kids to eat at McDonald's after service if there's people in the world that have nothing to eat? It's good for us to be moved in our heart to compassion towards the hurting and the suffering. But remembering that God is just and that God will one day execute judgment on everyone The wicked who oppress will be judged. Remembering that frees us up to actually enjoy the good that God has given and put in front of us. And to pursue justice while enjoying good. We cannot do that. We cannot be freed to enjoy those gifts if we don't believe that there will be justice done. So friends, the preacher says to know, to remember That all these things God will bring into judgment. And he says to the young man, his counsel to the young person. In verse 10. Is to remove vexation from your heart. And put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. I believe what he's talking about there. He's using vexation of the heart and pain in the body. Together to symbolize this response. To living a life that doesn't have the judgment of God in view. He talks about vexation arising in the soul, confusion, trouble, 
a, a troubled conscience, we might say, arising in the soul when you pursue by wisdom, trying to understand everything under the sun, all of this hevel, all of this vanity. And here, I think he's using it to talk about a life that's lived irregardless of the judgment of God, because we can't escape it, right? Romans says that we know God's power and divine nature in creation. And yet, what do we do? We suppress it. We exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship creation rather than the creator. But we can't escape what happens in our conscience when we do that, which is a vexation, an awareness, a guilt that sets in knowing that we ought to be remembering that we will be judged for how we respond to creation that God has given us. We will be judged for how we respond to God. Because God is judge, we ought to remove the anxiety by living in light of that. By remembering that he is judge. And because he is judge, our enjoyment of life ought to be more realistic and circumspect than worldly enjoyment. It ought to be full, and yet it ought to be not naive. It ought to be circumspect, and it ought to be realistic. The third thing the preacher talks about that is needful for us, if we're going to rejoice rightly, is that we remember that God is creator. We learn to rejoice rightly by remembering God as creator. He says this in verse 12, or excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 12, right? Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Remember also your creator. It's easier for us, I think, to remember that God is creator because that doesn't feel as, as dangerous as judge. That feels a little more comforting. But I want to reflect, how does remembering God as creator, how does that fuel our rejoicing? How does that help us rejoice rightly? I think first of all, what it does is that as we remember that God is our creator, we remember then that we are creatures, right? We are not God. The preacher over and over has been emphasizing this for you and I, that we are not God. And so that our enjoyment of gifts is exactly that enjoyment of a gift, That has been given to us. Because we did not create it. It doesn't come from us. It can't come from us. Because we don't have that power. Right? So we remember. As we remember that God is creator. We remember that we are creatures. And that we were created by a loving creator. By a creator who created everything very good. And commands us to enjoy his creation. What that means is enjoyment is not optional. Enjoyment is actually something we're required to do. If we remember that God is creator, we will remember that better. We will remember then that God is the source of all of the things we can enjoy. And we will remember that God as our creator created us on purpose and has a plan. Remembering God as creator teaches us that our creator has a plan and a purpose. In other words, God didn't create and then respond and then say, oops, this people is rebelling against me. What do I do? And try to figure out and think and say, I know I'll send my son. Right. We saw this in Sunday school when R.C. Sproul talked about the covenant of redemption that existed before creation even happened. God created with an intent and a purpose in mind the redemption of you and I through the blood of Christ Jesus. 
And what that means is as we remember that and as we rejoice in what we've been given now and in where we've been born and what our life experiences are that God brings us, we remember that all of these come as a gift to us to help us learn to trust in Jesus, to help us learn to put our faith in him and live according to his ways. As we remember that God is creator, it helps us remember that he has a purpose and a plan and is bringing it to fruition. Because God is the creator of everything that's very good under the sun, then our enjoyment of those very good things ought to be distinct and different from the world's enjoyment, right? We enjoy them as very good and we enjoy them as gifts, not as this is mine and you can't have any, right? We enjoy them open-handedly, generously, sharing with one another. We enjoy them as things that we're not entitled to, but that have come to us by the kindness of our creator. We learn to enjoy them differently. The preacher's counsel to us, particularly to young men and women, rejoice in your youth, he says. His counsel is to remember your creator in the days of your youth before these things happen. Verses 1 through 8 of chapter 12 is a long poem to say essentially, remember your creator before it's too late. Remember your creator before these things happen. I want to read that poem for us once again, because I think it's one of the most beautiful poems in Ecclesiastes. It's a description of aging and nearing death and the end of life. He's reminding the youth of what's going to come and telling them, motivating them. Now is the time to remember these things. Now is the time to learn these things. Here's what he says. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the streets are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low. And one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They're afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. And the dust returns to the earth as it was. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. The counsel to young men and women is to remember before it is too late that God is creator, that God is judge. To learn to rejoice in all of these good gifts, truly enjoying them. The problem that we experience, the problem with Obeying these exhortations with heeding this wisdom is that you and I have a memory problem, right? This has been true of God's people throughout the centuries that we have a memory problem. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse 11 to 20. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. 
Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may conform or confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God, And go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. So shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. This was written to God's people in ancient Israel. After they were brought out of Egypt. Out of slavery. Led through the wilderness like Moses says. Fiery serpents. The ground swallowing up God's enemies. People fleeing before them, pillar of fire and pillar of cloud, manna, quail, etc. And they're getting ready to enter the promised land, the land of goodness and fullness, where everything is laid out for them to enjoy fully as they ought to and rejoice in. And what does God say? Take care lest you forget. You have a memory problem. This is true of God's people back then. It's still true of God's people now. We have a memory problem. We are prone to forget God. Our enjoyment, without remembering that God is judge and that God is creator, leads to forgetting, which ultimately leads to destruction. So we must remember, but how do we remember? How do we learn to overcome? How do people with a memory problem Learn to overcome that memory problem, that forgetfulness, and remember God. That's what we long to do, right? The preacher is giving this advice specifically to young people, right? That's important. Because he's saying, form these habits of memory in you at a young age. This is why Moses writes in Deuteronomy, in the Shema, what Israel ought to do. Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. How? These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. God's people must remember, and it starts with teaching our children the ways of God. It starts with teaching our children to to think about God as judge and as creator and everything good as flowing from him. That's why the preacher in Ecclesiastes is targeting young people, saying, learn these things while you are young. What he wants them to learn is life rhythms, life habits that reflect and remember God as creator and as judge. I think a helpful way to think about them, as I was trying to think about how to help us think about what does it look like to remember, is we want to learn habits that interrupt our forgetfulness. 
Habits that interrupt our forgetfulness with what is unforgettable. Remember, in other words, learn to remember God's saving acts. God did this in Israel, the exodus from Egypt. And what did he do as part of that? He instituted a feast, right? Where year by year, God's people would eat this meal and it would interrupt their forgetfulness of what God had done in Egypt. Because they would be reminded of the lamb and the blood put over the doorposts and the angel of death passing over. And they would be reminded of being brought out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery and into the goodness and fruitfulness of the land. God would interrupt their year with this feast. As we remember and commemorate God's savings acts, God interrupts our year. He does this with things like Christmas, right? Things like Easter, where it is abnormal and we're reminded, in spite of our forgetfulness, what God has done, that he is both creator and judge. I think we can have our forgetfulness interrupted week by week by remembering the Lord's Day. We live in a pattern, right? Where week by week, we take one day a week and we interrupt our regular habit of work. We interrupt our regular habit of doing whatever we want. And we come together and we hear God's word and we sing about his word. And we sing about his saving faithfulness in Christ Jesus. We remind one another as we sing together and as we talk about him and his word. That he is creator. That he is judge. That he has given us gifts to enjoy rightly in light of those things. This pattern that God gave Israel of working six days and resting one interrupted their life, interrupted their forgetfulness. And he's given us the same pattern, but now we start our week with it so that our hearts are rightly aligned to Jesus and his resurrection. So friends, we must remember, but we remember by interrupting through even just being at church on the Lord's day, interrupting our regular habits. We remember and are interrupted in our forgetfulness as we give thanks, right? When we give thanks, especially at a mealtime or something, we're interrupting our normal pattern to stop and remember God. We're reorienting our hearts to these gifts that we have on this table are not ours and our own making. They're given to us by one creator, And we are judged on how we receive them. We interrupt our forgetfulness of God when we do things like that. Habits like this, we could go on. There's ways to build in our life interruptions and life rhythms that help us in our forgetfulness. We need those. God has given us those to help us learn to remember him as creator and as judge. Learn this while you're young and it will last you a lifetime. But what if you're old? What if as you read this poem and think about this, you hear the dragging of the grasshopper? And what if the almonds of your hair have already blossomed, have turned white? That's what that refers to. What if, what if your age is coming to a close and you are nearing the silver cord being snapped or the golden bowl broken? What if, what if you're trying to remember God, but you've forgotten him? What can you do? I think, friends, the first thing for us to do, any of us, in the midst of our failure to remember, is to repent. It is unbelief, as we talked about in the worship service this morning, to forget God. And so we rightly ought to repent of that unbelief. 
But we must remember, as we remember God as judge, we must remember that God is a righteous judge and God is a generous judge. God is gracious to us in Christ Jesus, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, quick to show mercy to those who repent. And we must remember that God is active as our creator. He's not just starting us off and calling us to figure it out on our own. But he's active, involved through his spirit in Christ Jesus. His plan is to bring you home. I think it's so beautiful that the poem talks about the spirit returning to God who gave it. Or man being ready to go to his eternal home. Like that's what death is. It's going home. And God is at work to bring you safely home. So if it, you feel like it's too late and you've forgotten God and you're nearing the end of your life, it is not too late. Repent and remember God. And then help your brothers and sisters, especially those younger than you, learn to remember God by using your wisdom and your life experience to remind them that God is creator and judge and we can rejoice in that. So friends, the message of the preacher this morning is to rejoice rightly. We must learn to do that by enjoying God's good gifts while we remember That God is over all of life, all of redempted history. He's creator, Genesis, the start of our Bible, the start of your life. He gave you life and breath. And he's judge, Revelation, the end of our Bible, the end of all of redemptive history, the end of your life where you will stand before him in judgment. God is over all of it. And as we remember that he is creator, we dive deeper into enjoying his gifts and we learn to long for the greatest gift. The greatest gift that he could give us, where we will truly find gain, just his son Jesus, right? And as we remember that he is judge, we dive deeper into an awareness of our own brokenness and sin, an awareness of his righteousness and holy judgment. And what are we done? What happens to us? We're driven to look for relief from that judgment, right? We're driven to the cross where we find Jesus, where we find God's graciousness to us. We learn from the book of John and from the book of Acts that Jesus himself is both creator and judge. And so when we're called to remember this, we're called to remember Jesus himself, who is our only hope. And if we remember Jesus, friends, our rejoicing will be right and good and pleasing to God and enjoyable to us. And we will live under the sun full of joy, remembering Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would forgive our forgetfulness of you. It is so easy to live this life without any remembrance of you. Not because it makes our life better or easier, Lord, but because our hearts are prone to forget. And so, God, I pray that you would forgive us, that you would continue remembering our frame as you promised to do that you would grant us mercy in Christ Jesus and that you would teach us and shape our lives in ways that you interrupt our forgetfulness with reminders of your saving goodness, with reminders of your kindness, your disposition to judge, but judge in light of the work of Christ, and with reminders of 
the glory that you have created us for. The joy that you have created us in. Would you help us remember these things and would you help us rejoice together as a church body? I pray that we as sojourners would be filled with joy. That the remembering these things would not tamper our joy, but would heighten it. Lord, would you do these things by your spirit, we pray. Amen.